Welcome back to the Campaign Builder. I'm Adam. And I'm Dan. And we're showing you how we build a campaign from level 1 to level 20. We know that your campaign will be different than ours, but listen to how we use these ideas of dynamic encounters to add unique scenarios to our sessions. We're designing encounters for a generic party of the following five archetypes. A warrior, priest, mage, criminal, and outdoorsman. And they're all very low level. But before we dive into the next portion of session building, we're going to determine what makes an urban setting so thoroughly unique when compared to the standard wilderness settings of fantasy tabletop role-playing games. This entire series, as well as other series on role-playing games, are available on the It's a Mimic feed on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and lots of other podcast apps. So don't forget to follow or subscribe on whatever app you're listening to. Also, check out the entire library of episodes on www.itsamimic.com, and feel free to support us by hitting that donate button. Well, that's enough shameless promotion for now. Let's get to building. Okay, Dan, urban settings are pretty straightforward. When we're talking Dungeons and Dragons or really any sort of uh, tabletop role-playing game at all, you're going to end up in a city. Mm -hmm. When most people end up in a city, they tend to go from room to room, building to building, or they're standing out in the street looking at shops. Maybe they'll end up in a marketplace. But there are lots of different wilderness settings. And yet, we know that the wilderness is just really not being in a city right? It's, it's, uh, the city life is straightforward, but it's also very one-dimensional at face value. A lot of, uh, tabletop role-playing games, a lot of tables where people are sitting around aren't really giving the urban setting enough of attention, I would say. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're focusing on one or two little street level encounters or, you know, you are prepared to, to go in and walk into a shop and every shop is exactly the same. They describe three or four different products, maybe and have a, yep. a flamboyant person in the shop, but that's what it means to be in an urban setting for most people. Well, my, my big problem with urban settings is uh, it seems like everyone uses the same skeleton to build their cities, and regardless of what kind of culture, what kind of city it actually is, it's always the same skeleton, right? It doesn't matter if you're working a metropolis or if you're working a small little like homlet. You are running you know, this one street that has a temple, a general store a maybe a barracks if it's a big city it's got a barracks and a town hall and there you go uh oh wait there's a bazaar there might be a bazaar but like everything's the same it doesn't matter if you are in like a dwarven citadel or a desert village made of tents uh, and like uh, this nomadic field doesn't matter they're always the same, and and people need to learn how to um, change it up a bit. And yet, and yet, wilderness is so radically different, and it's so widely varied. But we still have our expectations of what of what we see in wilderness. So I wanted to ask you, what are the commonalities that we see in in the wilderness in wilderness settings in uh, tabletop role playing games? Should we roll? Yeah, I, I've got three answers, and I know you've got three answers to this. So let's uh let's roll off and see exactly what we think are the regular tropes for wilderness um, and, yep. and for being out there, what, what you can expect no matter what the setting is. Sure. Okay, here we go. I got a 14. I got an eight. So you're going first. Right. What do you got, Dan? I mean, I'll, I'm just going to do the underhanded pitch here and just be like survival. No one gives a shit about survivalism when you're in an urban setting. However, when you're outside in the wilderness, you've got to worry about food, tracks, maintaining shelter, finding a safe place off the beaten path. It, essentially, you're going camping. 
right? Even whether it's Arctic to desert or even the only times I would say that you're not doing this in the quote unquote wilderness would be, let's say, uh, on the ocean surface or beneath the sea. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Well, I just sit here and go, most people run these large boats in ocean travel as just city on cities on the wave. Yes. Right. And, And underwater is its own unique thing where. Uh, honestly, we could do a whole other episode about being underwater. It, it's got its own. We'll crazy have to stuff. do that. Yeah. So, so just straight up camping, hey? Like that's, I mean, and that that's it. That's what people think about when you sit there and you look at your equipment list. We've got to go out on an adventure. The first thing that they they do is they grab backpack, bedroll, tent, and then they start looking at their gear. Right. We, you, and I have had many, many discussions about the the. Fact that people don't look at the mundane adventuring gear close enough or or imaginatively enough. Um, like I'm I'm a big fan of when I'm making a character, I spend probably more time buying random adventuring gear than I do actually building the stats of the character. People need to learn that this stuff is going to be helping them in their wilderness survival in in their campaign, no matter where you're at. I think this is a failing of modern dungeon masters not spending enough time on the exploration pillar we always rant and bitch about how we're not spending enough time it's not as well supported players don't really think about it and it's because dungeon masters are not prepping it we've got to start thinking about the setting we have to start thinking about exploration and the wilderness even exploration in an urban setting because I've seen some of the best engagement around the table has been in the exploration side of of the uh, of the game in Dungeons and Dragons, and people aren't doing that right. That they're not exploring it. They're not exploring the pillar. Pardon the pun. As much as I would like them to. <laughs> I guess uh, my first one is going to be: you are going to feel weather a hell of a lot more when you are out in the wilderness. This one is really straightforward, right? People get together in in groups and they build cities and whatnot to have protection from the wild. Part of the wild there, beyond just safety from, from animals or starvation or whatever, is the weather. And so people will put down roots and they're going to build structures. And that is something that you're going to see um, a lot of in an urban setting. But in a wilderness setting, uh, you're going to have to deal with that. What happens? We don't just have random tornadoes blowing through, right? Or the odd hailstorm. Why is it always a temperate, nice, cloudy day <laughs> at two in the afternoon every time we go walking out through the woods, right? There, There's a lot of different weather patterns out there. And I think that that, that adds a certain level of not just realism, but depth yep. to even even your basic travel. So yeah, my, my first answer is definitely the harshness of, of weather. I expect to see that. And again, that gets super dangerous when you talk about the ocean level. Uh, and again, this one doesn't super apply to beneath the ocean. So what what I would say for a DM who is maybe a new DM planning this out, um, try to have a calendar in your game, mostly because if you start talking about it's snowing, but you know, three sessions ago, you said it was late summer. There's going to be some issues, right? People, uh, the players are going to pick up on that. So uh, have a little calendar. Um, probably it's one of the things I attach to my DM screen, a little calendar to tell me what season, what year, uh, what what month I'm in. Um, and I don't really care if you make up your own or just use a standard like real life calendar and just be like, yeah, you guys in this fantasy world, you're in December. Ha <laughs> ha. Right. 
Like, uh, I, I don't see a problem with that, but that'll help you keep the weather on track and thematic for where it's supposed to be. If you're in the, you know, early spring or late spring and you start talking about thunderstorms, it's going to be a lot more understandable and expected than if you're in the, you know, middle of winter and all of a sudden there's a thunder and lightning storm. They don't happen in the winter. They happen at the late spring. Well, it depends on your it, on your region as well, right? Like if that's, you, that's you, you can yeah. expect a, a thunder lightning storm uh, in the desert in the winter, right? The same way that you can expect there to be snow and hail in the Arctic in the summer. Yeah. Or maybe that those are just uh, aspects of your campaign. But if you're going to start playing with weather, it's a good idea to keep a, a calendar. You don't have to track days, though. Just know what season you're no, in. No, And you can kind of hand wave and use generalities. A seven-day week is usually what people are going to be thinking about. I made the mistake um, in my previous campaign of creating a 10-day week with the 595-day calendar with six seasons. Yeah, and you're like, oh, you guys are there for a month, and we're like, 30 days, and you're like, nope. No, no, <laughs> many days, right? And so yeah. there were uh, there was some confusion and miscommunication a few times, and so adding a unique calendar can add a certain amount of... Uh, uh, there's another layer Additional it, work. Right, yeah. yeah, there's more work for the players to have to keep track of, so be careful when you do that, but at the very least for you as a DM, you should be thinking about what season is it, and what are the hallmarks of of this season what what do we think about what are the tropes so so mine is the uh my next one that you have to deal with is the isolation quite often when you are in the middle of the wilderness in the middle of a large you know journey from point a to point b you're the only people on the road there's no one around to help you there's no going to an inn to you know sell off that wares there's no uh there, there's none of that. You are alone in the wilderness. And this bears with it a certain amount of uh, paranoia, anxiety that I feel can often get hand waved and overlooked. I love the random like wilderness journey part of D&D. I love the random encounters. I love all that. So I feel like it could be done as a disservice quite often when you don't really focus on the fact that you and your party are quite possibly the only intelligent creatures for miles around you and the isolation that that is going to generate. Uh, my next one is going to be a little straightforward. I think I mentioned it a moment ago, like wild animals are out there. There's going to be animals all over the place. Uh, and because the animals will tend to avoid the cities, right? And we build cities and towns and, and groupings to protect ourselves from wild animals. This should be ramped up to a thousand, though, in a fantasy setting where there are purple worms and dinosaurs and yep. dragons. Obviously, it's in the title. So there are many different wild animals out there. The thing is, when you are in a city and you see a wild animal, chances are it's in a zoo. This is not an encounter. Maybe it's tamed and it's somebody's pet. Or, or or it's like a street-level urchin type, like a, a refuse feeder, right? Like like stray dogs, stray cats, rats, stuff like that, right? Vermin. Yeah. is the only other way you see them inside of an urban setting. And so you can expect that out in the wilderness, you're going to get your random encounters. So that's my answer for the next one, is you're going to run into more just random encounters for crazy-ass monsters that you are not expecting from around the corner. Uh, you, you are isolated, like you said, Dan, but you're isolated from intelligent creatures. The world is full of shit that wants to eat you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I just to add on to that real quick, it's also full of shit that doesn't want to eat you. Just because your party comes upon a pack of wolves doesn't mean those wolves are going to attack you. Just because your party comes up to some random monster doesn't necessarily mean that they want to attack you. And that's 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 on the DMs and the party to always try to think of a adventurous, a, a imaginative way out of any given situation. Now, if you're fighting a purple worm, it wants to eat you. If you're fighting an owl bear, it probably just wants you to get off its land, right? Know the motivation of even your monsters. That's important. Yeah, know the motivation of your monsters is kind of what I'm saying here. Because if your party can exploit that creature's motivations, like I said, an owl bear is very territorial creature and will most likely attack not because it's hungry, but because it's you're in its territory. So if you can get out of its territory, it might leave you alone, right? It'll probably chase you out of its territory. But at, the second you cross that boundary, it's going to turn around and walk back to its cave. Knowing that will help save your party spell slots and battle master points and whatever you have for the next encounter. So players, remind yourselves you're not murder hobos. You are interesting characters who do not just want to stab everything they possibly can. And DMs, plan accordingly. Like if if you have a group of party members that are just going through being murder hobos, killing all the wildlife in the area, well, stack some encounters on them so that they start realizing that maybe they should keep their abilities to their chest a little closer. So for my last one, I have uh, the very uh, the variety of terrain that you're going to come across in the wilderness. Um, the land is wild, it's unworked, and that goes all the way down to the soil. You're going to have cliffs, you're going to have raging rivers, you're going to have all of these other difficulties that you have to overcome that are purely terrain based. This could be anything from, you know, having to move a caravan through, you know, waist high snow and the effects that's going to have on wagons and horses and people to the blistering heat of and shifting sands of a desert, right? Um, Keep in mind, deserts, it's super easy to get lost in because every single dune looks the same and there's no guarantee that the dunes you've crossed will be there again later because everything moves. So I I would really pay attention to the terrain that you have to deal with. If I have a caravan going across a wilderness rocky terrain, well, they're going to have a cliff to contend with, right? And then you get to have interesting encounters where you get to talk to like the caravan leader saying, I know you've got a deadline to meet, but we can't cross this this chasm here. We've got to go two days south where there's a bridge built by ancient dwarves. Let's go there instead. You know, have that sort of role-playing encounter, that interesting aspect. If you're just a party out on an adventure, you know, your goal being at the top of a cliff is such a big deal. Especially when you consider, all right, well, we're in the wetlands and now that sheer cliff that's 120 feet tall is wet and it's got slime on it. And how the hell are we climbing that shit? Okay, so you notice that everything we've spoken about up until this point has been um, fairly uh, fluid, right? From the weather to the idea of the random encounters, you're talking about there being the, the isolation that you're in, but there's still things around you that are coming to investigate or they'll attack or, or they'll they'll just ignore you on their way by. You're talking about all these varying different terrain levels. Just to, to hail back for just a second into what you were talking about, you'll notice that people think Arctic, they think snow. 
They think forest. They think trees. But there's so much more to it than that. And so I almost like to have random encounters for for uh, geographical and geological things that that are happening around you that you may stumble upon. That, but that ties right into what I wanted to say last, which was you're traveling. There's no real sense of home when you are out in the wilderness. You may be in your favorite forest and you may camp for three days in a spot. But I don't know why dungeon masters are not sitting there saying, hey, it's it's getting to be dusk. What would you guys like to do? Do you want to push forward or do you want us to rest up for the night? When they say rest up, say, okay, great. Roll me a survival check. And then they roll and what they roll on their D20 will correspond directly to the to a D20 random table that I've made of what is around here that you will find that could offer protection or uh, maybe a water source or something, some unique factor that would be in this area. Like uh, maybe you just find that there's a whole bunch of scarring on some trees. Like there's a wild animal that uses these trees to sharpen its tusks. Maybe this is not the best place to stay. If they decide to stay anyway, you know, a random encounter you can throw at them at two in the morning, right? Like we should start thinking about where we're stopping. And every time we stop, it should be somewhere different. Not every clearing, no two clearings are the same. No. So why do we, why do we continuously just hand wave this and say, all right, so you guys bunk for the night. Who's taking first watch? No, set up camp, strategize, and do it every time because you never know when I'm going to throw a random encounter at you. So those are the commonalities about wilderness, but let's talk about the urban setting for a second. I complained a little bit about how everything is relatively the same when you end up in an urban setting. You said they use the same skeleton, and you're right. The big difference between a gnome settlement and an elven settlement and a dwarven settlement is usually just how thick the, the shopkeepers, how thick the canopy is, what language they're speaking. Yeah. Right. Like th- there's not a whole lot of uniqueness that's there. And so um, one of the things that I tend to do myself is to focus on some sort of geological unique landmark of some sort, like uh, a massive uh, spire that was created by a mage way back when, and now everybody like huddles around it. There should be ley lines that you're dealing with, which are magical conduits or conduits through the uh, through the entire landscape. There are there should yeah. be something that attracted people here. There's a massive waterfall, and that's why. And there's and so there's great uh, there's a great opportunity for the sea elves to come up river here. Like what is the thing? Have a a location-based city. So, besides just street-level towns and cities and stuff, Dan, what else do we have? I want to roll initiative again, but what what kind of unique settings can you find in and around cities that people aren't playing with? Besides just street-level and marketplace, because those are the two that people go to. Okay, cool. Ooh, natural 20. I got a 14. I was so excited. All right. You go. You're going first again. Um. So I like for um. I'm I'm a I'm a fan of a sport, a single a singular sport. I, I'm I'm a big fan of hockey, um. And the idea that some of these more uh, major towns or even lesser towns don't have some sort of coliseum or avenue for uh, sport including like bookies and betting and stuff like that as well. Um, 
these are things that need to that that are that could breathe some really interesting life inside of your uh, cities. And Wizards has at Wizards has at some times uh, brought these in at themselves as well. Like if you look into the um, Tomb of Annihilation adventure path and you look at Port Nianzaru, there's dinosaur racing, like having creative sport, um, either gladiatorial battles or races or you know, stuff like that. It could, and it could boil down to there's a ring inside of the bar for brawling. And if, if you go up to the ba- uh, bartender and say, hey, I, I want to throw down, he'll he'll produce a champion for you, right? And and winner gets, you know, their next drink free or something, right? Like um, having some sort of sport in your urban setting really breathes a lot of life into it. Um, if you have several teams and now you have another faction to deal with inside of your uh, cities as, you know, people really like the New York Giants. No, no, they don't. But they hate Nobody the does. Yankees. I'm, I'm flipping it on its head, okay? You you totally just picked two different sports too, by the oh, way. Oh, is it Mets? Is it New York Mets? Is Mets the baseball team? Oh my god. Adam? Adam baseball? <laughs> so my first answer is gonna be that I, I think that we should spend more time looking down at the docks. Down at the docks where there's a I always try to have some sort of water feature unless I'm in a desert. Um, because I really, really, really want the dock, um, habitat down there. It's not just a bunch of piers. A lot of people think, oh, down by the docks. And they think that there are five or six different ships or boats that are, that are moored there. There's more than that. You can have many, mm-hmm. many, many ships that are there. There's warehouses. There are usually taverns. There are going to be straight up inns and hotels as well that are littered around the area. There's going to be like fishmongers and little little marketplaces and whatnot there will be shops dedicated directly to being at the at the docks and and sea travel right where you're gonna have people that are just like hey you know what i sell rope and just shit tons of it how thick do you want and what do you want it made of right and and people will come (laughs) and they they will go looking for this because this is going to provide unique opportunities you're going to start thinking outside the box when you start dealing with the docks as a marketplace as well. The other thing that I like about the docks is that in a fantasy, if you have got a, a big enough city, if you've got a, a proper, a city proper, right? It doesn't even need to be a yeah. metropolis, just a proper city where you have a huge population and there are now districts. Would there, would there not be carriages that are for, for hire to take you from point A to point B, right? You will have an entire taxi service involved there will be people registering you there will probably be some sort of uh town guard or police detachment down at the docks as people come and go because this is a major area where uh where people are passing through we always have town guards standing at the gates but nobody was worried about who was standing at the dock with a clipboard taking the name of the captain and writing down the description of the ship and what they're carrying you know where the customs agents and this seems a little ridiculous but that shit would be there that shit existed in history. And so the docks themselves are a weird little mini city within the city. And you can get radically different flavor, especially because everything gets to be a little bit more rough and tumble. Just yeah. as, a, as a general trope, 
things tend to get a little bit rougher. You start to see the blue tattoos and the people missing an eye and, and weird shit like that. And there's everyone is always going to be drinking to the ship that was lost or the captain that was overthrown or whatever it was, right? There will always be rumors being passed. Like, the docks is just a fantastic place in a city. Yeah. So I also like uh, injecting into any one of my cities a park, uh, some sort of large scale groomed open air natural place in the city. And this this is going to look different in like a gnomish enclave than it will look in a dwarven, um, like a, a dwarven keep, right? Like these things, uh, uh, what could be considered a park to a dwarf is going to be different than what a human thinks a park is, what an elf thinks a park is. So having some sort of park um, that may or may not have attractions or activities that your party could do during their downtime just to like, I don't know, relax, injects a little bit of realism into the game. Um, I love the idea of having like miniature amusement parks that have like rides and feats of strength and uh, games that your party could win like little knickknacks from, right? Because everyone loves the little knickknacks and there's a handy dandy chart in the, what is it? Is it in the Dungeon Master's Guide? The 101 knickknacks that your character could have? Um, there's a little random chart there and like, go go throw some weighted balls at weighted bottles, knock them over and here you go. Here's your oversized stuffed bear. Now your barbarian has an oversized stuffed bear that they insist goes with them to the temple of elemental evil to kill the princes of the apocalypse. I love it. it, it it's fun. It, it's a good way to bring some comedy and some humor and some just relaxation and levity to your campaign. A park. Put a park in your city. It's also fun to watch your players get to, they get to flex their muscles doing things at like a carnival level in the park yep. or, or they, they get to go out and be a little bit more a little bit more engaged with their role playing because they get to use skills and and abilities on their character sheet instead of just trying to get something yep. right well i need to get the next piece of information i need to to determine where is the next area that that we need to go this is it's relaxed there's no high stakes they're gonna it's bragging rights and players love having bragging rights and so I, I really like the idea of there being a little a little Coney Island level scenario yeah. in the, in the yeah. middle of, of a city. Because how often do we stumble upon the Harvest Festival in a town? But a city would have something that, <laughs> that would be a, a little bit more permanent. I actually really like the idea of a Coney Island type of thing, which is a park that is on a dock. So like you, you have a park in these different sections of your town like what's a park in a uh temple district look like compared to the park in the you know the military district the park in the nobles district the park in the mercantile district what do these places look like like i don't want to go and spend any amount of time in the park in the uh, mercantile district because there's probably guys there who will shank me however if i go to the park in the religious section it it will go really well my next one is, I was thinking about the docks being one area. Yeah, have you ever noticed that whenever you see a city and whatnot in a fantasy realm, you see a couple of farms on the outskirts, but in reality, the farmland was the majority of the country, and, and the farmland was the thing that was pushing back the trees? How come we're not spending time out in the farms, in the rural community? 
And I don't mean like this is a small town with an inn. No, it's just farmhouses. You got to travel a few hours to get out to talk to that farmer out there. And they're not just a single like farm. I grow turnips. This is a fully functioning farm. They have farmhands. There's a culture here. They've got probably a large family and they've got a whole bunch of employees and they've got acres and acres and acres that they're responsible for. This is their living and they have real world problems. They have to go into the city. They're close to it. They're technically a part of the city, but you don't see D&D groups walking down dusty roads between cornfields unless the cornfield is a plot point and we're going to fight a scarecrow. Yeah. I also like putting, and I mentioned it briefly there, uh, libraries and like storehouses of knowledge. And I understand like a lot of people do put these in their cities, but I put a lot of time and effort into building the libraries and houses of knowledge in my cities. Um, And like I do with my parks, I theme them to whatever district that they're in. And this is going to be more along the lines of, you know, a a library in a temple district is going to look different from a, you know, library in the poor end of town versus the library in the nobles end of town. Having a library is important in your town because it gives your socially awkward wizard a place to go and hide and just do some research while the rest of the party is engaging in drinks and merriment in the tavern. So I, I I like to have that place set up for them. And remember that not all libraries have all information and most libraries know where that information can be found. So having a librarian who can direct the party to a different city as kind of the big quest giver almost um, is a great resource for a DM to use. I really like that as well because you're right. People do include libraries, but they kind of hand wave it as just being a part of downtime. Do an investigation check and that that's it, right? Just do an investigation check. Okay, this is what the, this is what information you found. Why are we not going in and talking to people and role playing and having battle in the stacks? Right? Libraries are intensely interesting and very different, especially because your your mage is not going to blow the big fire spells surrounded by tomes of knowledge. All right, Dan, what is the very first uh, encounter that most new adventurers get? Oh, we have a rat infestation down in the sewers. Can you go deal with it? We're always down in the sewers. Let's get up onto the roofs. We have flying creatures in D&D. Why are there not docks up? We should have these buildings that are dedicated. And I don't mean like Aarakocra. I don't mean bird people. I mean, we've got people that are flying in on on a Pegasus or they've tamed a a Manticore and the Manticore has an attitude problem. We've got people that are flying around all the time. Is there a a dragon lord somewhere that's around that comes and visits? Whether they be good or evil, would they not have a place where they would want to land consistently that this is where I am? People can see me landing on top of this building. I spread my wings and the city knows. Think vertically. Think flyers, especially because we saw in Game of Thrones, you know, they're sending ravens back and forth to to be messengers. We've seen in Harry Potter that they have owls dropping off envelopes. We should have more birds doing more things that that are tamed. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, oh, I want a pet hawk or I'm going to be a falconer. That's great. Do that. How many other people in the city are doing this? It, It should not be outside of the realm of possibility that there are just birds lining every windowsill and every rooftop all the time waiting for their next mission. So I I really want to see more stuff that's happening up. 
in an urban campaign. Um, and also, it's it's really cool just to stand on the rooftops and describe how beautiful the city is beneath you. It's going to give you something a little different to do as a DM, just to add a little bit more majesty. We tried to, to really hit that home with the jingling city on the, on the podcast when we first got there. The idea that you are above and you have to descend down into the city and there'd be these lights and it looks really cool. And we've got all these different districts, all this graffiti. We've got bridges and stuff. But why are there not bridges just between two really tall buildings? Remember, they don't have elevators, right? <laughs> if it, that's, a, if that's 40 stories tall. Yep. They're just going to want a bridge on, on level 38, right? Over to the next building. So really do... <laughs> think up oh man i've 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 put gondolas in some of my cities i've put uh like fairies uh because i like thinking of what happens if a city is built in the middle of like thinking up um and and thinking of different ways to travel throughout your city both great again i i just said they don't have elevators why not this is a magical city why do they not have have, a platform with levitate that's cast upon it and there's a guy who just activates um, the anti-magic field, right? To, to let it descend slowly or yep. he turns it off to let it rise slowly, right? Like, think think about what you could have. Maybe these things are on the outs- outside of buildings as well, right? You, there are so many cool, fantastical things you can do if you just start thinking upward. And, and for those of you who are like, why are there elevators in my fantasy? I mean, look at Eberron, man. Look... Look at we we've had elevators as humans for hundreds of years. They've they've had different looks to them, different functions to them, but they've existed. So like in a world where there is gnomish tinkers, that makes no sense why a gnomish tiny little gnome tinkerer wouldn't have created a, a way to get to the you know top shelf in their or or the second floor in their house that didn't involve stairs. Dwarves are famous miners. There are mine shafts. They have to have ways of going up and down. Exactly. So um, if, if you think elevators don't belong in your fantasy, they do. Okay, so we've spoken a bit about what we can expect from wilderness, something that ties them all together. And we've spoken a bit about urban settings and how we can uh, get some real diversity there. But we all know that variety is a spice of life. That's really what we're saying here. And that mixing things up keeps the game fresh for players. It's going to keep them engaged when they're not just sitting in the same place over and over. We go out into the world to find adventure. But why else is it so important to vary locations? I've got a couple answers, Dan, and, and I know that you do as well. Let's roll initiative on this again. Uh, we're going to roll a lot of dice this session. But uh, I just wanted to I wanted to hear what you have to say besides just the differing locations being interesting for players. Why else as a DM would you do this? What tools does it afford you? So let's roll. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Okay. Well, you got a natural 20. I just got a net one. So here you go. Oh, what, I, I, I won with the two. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. You're just talking first uh, on all of these, this, this episode. So here we go. <laughs> I don't even know why I bother anymore. I like to mix it up. One, it keeps things interesting. It keeps things, um, uh, I don't know, engaging with your players. But that that's the simple answer. Um, for my answer to this one, it gives the sense, if you're, if you're varying the world and you're varying the, the surroundings around your players, it gives the players a sense that they are being able to affect the grand world at large. And, you know, not just their little homes, right? Like... Um, it, it makes them feel like the big damn heroes if they're just 
if they are able to push their borders and explore the boundaries. Remember, this is also a game where you could do anything and go anywhere, and it's often played by people who work a nine to five and need to be back on Monday. So going to this grand desert, going to this you know monstrous waterfall, isn't part of our real life day to day job, uh, real life day to day lives, but it's something we can experience, um, and our players and our our characters can affect. Um, in in their day to day lives, and it affords you the opportunity to to move beyond and be the hero repeatedly. How many times can you save the same village before you just give up and move on? <laughs> well, it's not even before you give up and move on. Before people just stop attacking your village, right? Like, yeah, I, I'm all for the good good old fashioned siege in D and D, but but at at some point, this is just ridiculous, and the DM is hitting the same plot point over and over again. By heading to a different town, you're going to find different problems, right? So, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. When you're going to a different town, you're going to get a different set of politics. And not just kingdom to kingdom or, you know, oh, this one's got a democracy. This one has a theocracy. It, it doesn't matter. I'm talking like like town level. Like we know that the, this mayor is a little corrupt and nobody likes this mayor. Everybody loves this one. The sheriff is the real power in town here. You can go ahead and ask City Hall, but if you want anything done, go and talk to the to the barmaid because she's got all of the answers and she can hook you up with the right people to talk to. There are so many different power structures that you can have in an urban setting that by by mixing it up, even in, in a rural setting, you're going to know who the top of the food chain is in a wilderness setting. The rural setting may have, have councils and... Um, and different people there may be like a meeting house or a union house or just by going somewhere else you're going to have to deal with different people in control in different ways and because you've got a warrior a mage a priest a criminal and an outdoorsman they're all going to thrive under different scenarios so really having different politics allows them to flex their muscles and for everyone to get the spotlight so that your minstrel character or your mage character is not the one that's always in control so for my next answer, mixing things up um, and throwing in a little bit of variety is going to help your players keep on keep on their toes. It means your players aren't going to be able to prepare for the same situation over and over and over again. They've got to look at every situation uniquely as the unique thing that it is. Um, you're not going to bring a bunch of climbing gear to a salt flat or, or, or even into a city. I mean, you might into a city, but... It's situations like that. It keeps your players on their toes. It keeps them, it, it, it keeps them engaged with the day to day of the of the game as well. So I like to add the variety and have the importance in there to really make sure the players are thinking critically about any given situation they're in. Yes, by varying the necessities of the different areas, they're going to have to start thinking with different tactics, and that's that's really important. And I think that it is um, kind of hand waved too often. When it's yeah. time to go gear up, what are you taking? And it's good for the dungeon master to say sometimes, hey guys, you're going to the Arctic. What are you taking? And they don't just get the hand wave, oh, I'm going to get warm clothes. No, be specific because you have summer tents. What are you getting? And this is this is an opportunity for your players and for your DMs to finally make use of those kits and those packaged items and those tool proficiencies. So um, as a DM... 
give your players the opportunity to use their different tool proficiencies and vehicle proficiencies by mixing things up as well. It lets you really utilize the entire character sheet rather than some of these things just becoming useless and falling on the on the wayside. The last one that I have is, I think, going to be the obvious one here. When you go to different locations, you get to play with different parts of the monster manual. Yep. And that's a lot of fun. I know that we we live in North America here. Um, Dan and I live in the Pacific Northwest. And so we have a very different subset of, of mammals and uh, birds and fish than they do on the other coast or even further down the Pacific, the Pacific coast. So there are, depending on your region, things can vary wildly. When you are sitting there looking at the monster manual and you say, you know what, uh, we're in a heavily forested area or we're, we're in the mountains. Not every mountainous creature is going to be here. Maybe you have to travel to far distant mountains. We need mountain people to go to that mountain on the other side of the map over there. You got to cross the plains and the forest and everything else to go get there. But that is the only place where you can find stone giants or whatever it is, right? So you get to play with different parts of the monster manual and you get to actually create random tables that are going to be a little bit more unique. And while the beasts might be very similar from one place to another, the magical creatures, the monstrosities, all of the different subsets are are going to give you um, far more unique opportunities. And look, it's it's not like every single forest is absolutely filled with griffins and hippogriffs and manticores and, and carrion crawlers and owlbears. No, there's an apex predator in each forest. What is it? Have this be the manticore forest. You're not going to randomly run into one of these just out in the woods on the other side of, of the province or district or or region or however you break your your map down so by by hitting different parts of the map you are more likely to run into different and and more unique creatures out and about remember you used to have to travel to medusa in greek lore mm-hmm. right there was not uh, what's the plural of pegasus dan you know why people argue with this because there was one Right, you don't run across these things in flocks or herds. What is it for a Pegasus? A flock or a herd? Doesn't matter. Write in. Let, uh, us, let us know. <laughs> my opinion, flock. Really? That's not what I heard. I hate you a little bit. Maybe it should be a murder. <laughs> okay, so now we've talked about what we can expect in the wilderness. We've talked about what what we want to see more of in an urban setting. And now we've talked about why people should be kind of spicing it up a little bit more. Dan, really quickly, bullet point now, what are three locations that you've never played in that you want to play in a campaign? Something you've never explored that you that you want to, to, to really mix it up for you. How many years of DMing, or not even DM, D&D experience do you have? You're on like decade uh, three now at this point. I, I'm I, I'm I'm at 25 years, so this is a very hard question for me to legitimately answer. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I've never been in. Oh no, I did that a couple of years ago. Shit, I was I was 12 when I did that. Well, what Ooh. what is an underutilized <laughs> location for you then? Because I've yeah, got, that, that's how I went with it. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got oh my god, almost 15 years of experience at this point, and there are yep. still entire sections of the um, Dungeons and Dragons world that I've never stepped foot in. So let's roll and let's see what, 
what other people should be thinking about beyond just forests and, and planes and whatever the modules have to offer. Cool. A nine. My God. Now I rolled a two. I did not win once this episode. Wow. And we rolled it four times. You've, you've, you have the shittiest luck, like with, with this podcast and also the, the, um, it's a mimic podcast. Like you, you have not been rolling well lately, man. You, you need to see people, your dice feed off of the misery of your players. I think just you, just you. Oh, well, they get, they get ample sustenance when I'm around. Anyways, um, for me, man, it's, it's the winter tundra. I, I, the extended stay in the, winter wilderness um and and uh not so much like the flat tundra i'm talking like mountains and trees and dense snow and interesting animals that are there like uh not where the the cold makes it so nothing grows and everything is dead but the like the vibrant life of winter like when you think um, vikings right you don't mean like yeah. polar bears you mean like viking the norse um i mean like vikings and norse uh uh like i i think of the quote unquote north pole that we see in any uh christmas movie where it's like in the middle of a dense forest in like a valley in the mountains and like it's just beautiful and brisk and i mean it could have all of its own threats all of its own uh other worries and concerns and quests but i have not been in like a winter location in years right and this is coming from the guy who likes to play barbarians from the north i have not been able to do that in a very long time I will tell you this, Dan, you missed the frozen winter season in the campaign that I just ran because because you uh, joined a little late. Um, so yep. so you missed that opportunity. But it, I was super excited when we did our Christmas special because we got to crash land a sleigh in the mountains. And it was yep. a lot of fun. In my head, I was super stoked. I wanted to spend hours playing in that. Now, we had to move it through it pretty quickly. I mean, it was a, a podcast special, right? But... Uh, I got a little bit of flavor there and it is so different and it's so uniquely majestic in that area and yet unforgiving as well. I don't know. I agree with you. That is that is just one of the best out there. And I think with the exception of Storm King's Thunder, we don't have that in 5th Ed anywhere else. We got a lot of tropical. We got a lot of uh, wasteland, but we don't really have a lot of winter. Okay. I've touched on this a couple of times because it's so damn unique, but I want to do an underwater campaign. I think that it is so thoroughly different and I just need there to be consistent and awesome and well thought out 3D movement mechanics. And the moment that that happens, I want to do an underwater campaign, right? And I don't mean going from bubbled city to bubbled city like uh, in the Phantom Menace when they're underwater. No, I'm talking like Aquaman. Like that's that's what I want to see. I want to see some real like you swim up to that building that's made out of coral 300 feet above you. And that's where that's where you have to go talk to someone. Everyone can breathe water and talk underwater, right? It just doesn't go as far. Light is dimmer down here. I want I want to play with underwater more often. So the idea that you cannot light fire, that is intriguing to me. And I have I have played a single one shot and it lasted two hours and it was combat only and I was not impressed. 
I want far <laughs> more underwater adventures and I'm waiting for there to be a good, solid, well thought out version of underwater mechanics because Ghosts of Saltmarsh did a pretty good job, but it was all surface level ocean. You didn't really dive down into the depths and explore down there for levels, for entire swaths for months. So that's what I'm looking forward to. This might just be me saying I really, really, really want to play in Avernus, but the planar hellish landscapes, um, which is a wilderness in and of themselves, and the the varied aspects of like literally Avernus. I want to play and explore Avernus in its ever-shifting, ever-changing hellish landscape. It, it kind of breaks the mold a little bit because, I mean, we've been talking about wildernesses and cities and like all natural stuff, but um, these planar locations can offer that all in and of themselves. This is my cry to help that I, I want to play Avernus. They all have their own wilderness there. Yeah. They just have unique, weird rules and bizarre physics and things about them. So I totally get that. You have played for so long that you want to see something new. Yep. And Avernus, the, the latest book that came out about it, really did flesh out the landscape and what you can expect. Uh, they did a pretty good job in that one. So I'm... Oh, yeah. I can understand that. I would like to play in that as well. I actually have uh, one of my campaigns that um, just is about to work their way through Avernus. Uh, and they... Oh, cool. They do not see it coming. <laughs> so my next one, um, I'm going to jump the gun. I was going to do this last, but you said you wanted to do the top level of the Nine Hells. I want to explore the multiple planes of chaos from limbo. You're not just talking about the abyss, right? You're 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 talking about like anything that can be located as chaos. That's right. A absolutely everything because there are so many unique opportunities. Limbo itself just it just blows my mind the fact that the laws of physics don't work and shit is changing all the time and it is coming into being and then disintegrating and turning into something else. And the whole landscape is like that. It is a fever dream of insanity. And I absolutely love that. Pandemonium sounds horrifying. Being just a bunch of tunnels and that's it with just winds blowing through all of the time and screeching creatures that are stalking you through the tunnels. It's like the Underdark, but with a sense of crazy urgency and no safety whatsoever. There's yeah. a lot of crazy things. Aborea is another one where, I mean, and that's on the good scale, but that is just unfettered life. And it's not weird life like the Feywild. It's just pure, perfect nature. I want to spend time here. The the chaos, planes, the 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 planar chaos that's just it appeals to me because that is it is um wilderness cranked up to a thousand and i love that my next one is i want to play an entire campaign a full arc of a campaign in the grimy wet steampunky town like i i, I want i want that dark noir mystery campaign um, we had a taste of this with the most recent campaign that we did, um, but it was just like a taste. We spent most of our time, you know, traipsing through jungles or running away from mimics the size of galleons. Uh, I, I, I want to have a campaign that is just a mystery campaign where we, we, we play investigators and, 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 and uh, detectives or femme fatales or you want to play like, call of cthulhu i, I want to play call of cthulhu again um I, but i want to play call of cthulhu 
but I want it to be an urban Call of Cthulhu. Like we we did ours in the middle of the frozen wilderness in nowhere, like and bare tundra. I want I want this to be a living, breathing town. And because it's Call of Cthulhu, it could be literally a living, breathing town. I don't know. It's Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> things get weird. But I want I want to experience that. I want to play in that. I I I don't think I want to DM it because of all the the the, the work and stuff that um, would go into building that kind of dense urban environment. But um, I, I definitely want to play in that. You look that that's really good for you because between Eberron and Ravnica, there are a lot of tools out there for a DM to build stuff that is kind of steampunky and dirty and whatnot. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I want to play an Eberron campaign. I should call Dave up. Oh, that's your first mistake. <laughs> okay, my last one is, I think it exists out there, and people have probably played in it. I've never played in it, and I'm a little disappointed in um, the narrow-mindedness of what Out of the Abyss had to offer. I want more out of the Underdark. I want to play where there are giant open oceans in the Underdark. I want to play where it is uh, crazy... Crazy! It's not just it's not just tunnels from one cavern to another. There are ravines that go down forever. There are like nigh bottomless pits. I want to be down there where it is. You cannot trust the ground where you are walking through this it, this massive tunnel that's been bored out of of the ground. You're sitting there going, "Who dug this?" And you realize that it's it's kind of cylindrical shaped all the way through. And oh, you're walking through a tunnel that a purple worm has dug out. And then as you're sitting there going, oh my God, like, are we in kind of the region of the purple worm? The ground starts to shake and the purple worm just passes by in front of you out of the ceiling into the ground, blocking your view of where you can go next. This, I think, is what I really want to see, this idea of being ants lost inside this gigantic underground labyrinth that the, the area you came in is gone. That door has closed. You're down here now. This is your life. Yeah, you really want to bleed in or play into the claustrophobia of it as well. Also, the crazy majesty of it too, right? Like, there's so much beauty to be had underground. Yeah, uh, you look up, you know, beautiful caves on Google, uh, and you will see like all of these amazing geological structures and these geodes and crystals, and there's got to be crazy stuff down there. We've got like myconids. And that's it, <laughs> right? Like, there's not a whole lot going down in the in the official published material. I want someone to really put their time and, and their mind to it to build something fantastic. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Down there. And then fill it full of a bunch of slavery and horror and, and death. Oh, man, I, I really like that. And then not just the taste we got into Out of the Abyss, but like a, a full campaign dive would be wonderful to do so now that we have a better handle on the different locations and the different kinds of locations that exist let's sit in the warmth of our tavern rooms and plan the next journey this will let us open up new opportunities for creative adventures and interesting set pieces tune in next week when we finally get a deeper look within our own party's guild check us out on instagram facebook r slash it's a mimic one word on reddit and more and contact us at info at itsamimic.com because we would love to hear your thoughts on how you would use this episode in your own homebrew campaigns. I'm Dan. And I'm Adam. And we'll be back with more prep work next week.
why is there no such thing as a dire rabbit? How come we don't have oh there should dire ducks? There, there should be right. Like we, I, 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 th- I think it's because the wizards who created the dire animals didn't, you know, want to have cute animals. Like you have a dire boar, but you don't have like a dire pig. Yeah, but but in reality, when you're doing an experiment, don't you start on like a rabbit or a mouse or something first? Like you do it on on prey well, you or you have a dire rat. Did dire rats are a thing. Rats and mice are very different. But like <laughs> my my point here is that there should be large passive animals, prey level animals that have no real natural predators and will not be frightened of you. And a dire rabbit will just hop up to you, shaking the ground, look at you, eat a tree, and then move on. Right? Like yeah, there do- that doesn't need to be a combat encounter. Your warrior will probably make it a combat encounter, but that adds <laughs> something unique to the to the scenario. So I, I would just yeah. I would just say that we walk past a million trees that are passive and we take note of the ones that are trying to kill us. Why don't we have that with animals more often? Man, I I, I would pay money to see like a dire squirrel. But I hate squirrels, so I'd probably still kill it. But I mean I I would still like I, I wanna see like dire I don't know, a dire cockroach. No, man, that's terrifying. I know. Okay, bye.